Chapter One, Joseph, Part Eighteen of the Legends of the Jews, Volume Two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Legends of the Jews, Volume Two, by Rabbi Louis Ginsburg. The Death of Jacob. After Jacob had blessed each of his sons separately, he addressed himself to all of them together, saying, According to my power I did bless you, but in future days a prophet will arise, and this man Moses will bless you too, and he will continue my blessings where I left off. He added besides that the blessing of each tribe should redound to the good of all the other tribes. The tribe of Judah should have a share in the fine wheat of the tribe of Benjamin, and Benjamin should enjoy the good barley of Judah. The tribes should be mutually helpful one to another. Moreover, he charged them not to be guilty of idolatry in any form or shape, and not to let blasphemous speech pass their lips. And he taught them the order of transporting his bier, thus, Joseph, being king, shall not help to bear it, nor shall Levi, who is destined to carry the ark of the Shekinah. Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun shall grasp its front end, Reuben, Simon, and Gad its right side, Ephraim, Manasseh, and Benjamin the hindmost end, and Dan, Asher, and Naphtali its left side. And this was the order in which the tribes, bearing each its standard, were to march through the desert, the Shekinah dwelling in the midst of them. Jacob then spake to Joseph, saying, And thou, my son Joseph, forgive thy brethren for their trespass against thee, forsake them not, and grieve them not, for the Lord hath put them into thine hands, that thou shouldst protect them all the days against the Egyptians. Also he admonished his son, saying that the Lord would be with them if they walked in his ways, and he would redeem them from the hands of the Egyptians. I know, he continued, great suffering will befall your sons and your grandsons in this land, but if you will obey God, and teach your sons to know him, then he will send you a Redeemer, who will bring you forth out of Egypt and lead you into the land of your fathers. In resignation to the will of God, Jacob awaited his end, and death enveloped him gently. Not the angel of death ended his life, but the Shekinah took his soul with a kiss. Beside the three patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, only Moses, Aaron, and Miriam breathed their last in this manner, through the kiss of the Shekinah. And these six, together with Benjamin, are the only ones whose corpses are not exposed to the ravages of the worms, and they neither corrupt nor decay. Thus Jacob departed this world, and entered the world to come, a foretaste of which he had enjoyed here below, like the other patriarchs, and none beside other men. In another respect their life in this world resembled their life in the world to come. The evil inclination had no power over them, either here or there, wherein David resembled them. Joseph ordered his father's body to be placed upon a couch of ivory, covered with gold, studded with gems, and hung with drapery of byssus and purple. Fragrant wine was poured out at its side, and aromatic spices burnt next to it. Heroes of the house of Esau, princes of the family of Ishmael, and the lion Judah, the bravest of his sons, surrounded the sumptuous spear of Jacob. "'Come,' said Judah to his brethren, "'let us plant a high cedar tree at the head of our father's grave.' Its top shall reach up to the skies, its branches shall shade all the inhabitants of the earth, and its roots shall grow deep into the earth, unto the abyss. For from him are sprung twelve tribes, and from him will arise kings and rulers, 
chapters of priests prepared to perform the service of the sacrifices, and companies of Levites ready to sing psalms and play upon sweet instruments. The sons of Jacob tore their garments and girded their loins with sackcloth, threw themselves upon the ground, and strewed earth upon their heads until the dust rose in a high cloud. And when Asenath, the wife of Joseph, heard the tidings of Jacob's death, she came, and with her came the women of Egypt, to weep and mourn over him. And the men of Egypt that had known Jacob repaired thither, and they mourned day after day, and also many journeyed down into Egypt from Canaan to take part in the seventy days' mourning made for him. The Egyptians spake to one another, saying, Let us lament for the pious man Jacob, because the affliction of the famine was averted from our land on account of his merits. For instead of ravaging the land for forty-two years according to the decree of God, the famine had lasted but two years, and that was due to the virtues of Jacob. Joseph ordered the physicians to embalm the corpse. This he should have refrained from doing, for it was displeasing to God, who spoke, saying, Have I not the power to preserve the corpse of this pious man from corruption? Was it not I that spoke the reassuring words, Fear not the worm, O Jacob, thou dead Israel? Joseph's punishment for this useless precaution was that he was the first of the sons of Jacob to suffer death. The Egyptians, on the other hand, who devoted forty days to embalming the corpse and preparing it for burial, were rewarded for the veneration they showed. Before he destroyed their city, God gave the Ninevites a forty days' respite on account of their king, who was the pharaoh of Egypt, and for the threescore and ten days of mourning that the heathen made for Jacob, they were recompensed at the time of Ahasuerus. During seventy days, from the thirteenth of Nisan, the date of Haman's edict ordering the extermination of the Jews, until the twenty-third of Siwan, when Mordecai recalled it, they were permitted to enjoy absolute power over the Jews. When all preparations for the burial of Jacob had been completed, Joseph asked permission of Pharaoh to carry the body up into Canaan. But he did not himself go to put his petition before Pharaoh, for he could not well appear before the king in the garb of a mourner, nor was he willing to interrupt his lamentation over his father, even for a brief space, and stand before Pharaoh and prefer his petition. He requested the family of Pharaoh to intercede for him with the king for the additional reason that he was desirous of enlisting the favor of the king's relations, lest they advise Pharaoh not to fulfill his wish. He acted according to the maxim, Seek to win over the accuser, that he cause thee no annoyance. Joseph applied first to the queen's hairdresser, and she influenced the queen to favor him, and then the queen put in a good word for him with the king. At first Pharaoh refused the permission craved by Joseph, who, however, urged him to consider the solemn oath that he had given his dying father to bury him in Canaan. Pharaoh desired him to seek absolution from the oath, but Joseph rejoined, Then I will apply also for absolution from the oath I gave thee, referring to an incident in his earlier history. The grandees of Egypt had advised Pharaoh against appointing Joseph as viceroy, and they did not recede from this counsel until Joseph, in his conversation with the Egyptian king, proved himself to be master of the seventy languages of the world, the necessary condition to be fulfilled before one could become ruler over Egypt. But the conversation proved something else, that Pharaoh himself was not entitled to Egyptian kingship, because he lacked knowledge of Hebrew. He feared, if the truth became known, Joseph would be raised in his own place, for he knew Hebrew besides all the other tongues. In his anxiety and distress, 
Pharaoh made Joseph swear an oath never to betray the king's ignorance of Hebrew. Now, when Joseph threatened to have himself absolved from this oath as well as the one to his dying father, great terror overwhelmed him, and he speedily granted Joseph permission to go up to Canaan and bury his father there. Moreover, Pharaoh issued a decree in all parts of the land menacing those with death who would not accompany Joseph and his brethren upon their journey to Canaan with their father's remains, and accordingly the procession that followed the bier of Jacob was made up of the princes and nobles of Egypt, as well as the common people. The bier was borne by the sons of Jacob. In obedience to his wish, not even their children were allowed to touch it. It was fashioned of pure gold, the border thereof inlaid with onyx stones and bedellum, and the cover was gold-woven work joined to the bier with threads that were held together with hooks of onyx stones and bedellum. Joseph placed a large golden crown upon the head of his father, and a golden scepter he put in his hand, arraying him like a living king. The funeral cortege was arranged in this order. First came the valiant men of Pharaoh and the valiant men of Joseph, and then the rest of the inhabitants of Egypt. All were girt with swords and clothed in coats of mail, and the trappings of war were upon them. The weepers and mourners walked, crying and lamenting, at some distance from the bier, and the rest of the people went behind it, while Joseph and his household followed together after it, with bare feet and in tears, and Joseph's servants were close to him, each man with his accoutrement and weapon of war. Fifty of Jacob's servants preceded the bier, strewing myrrh upon the road in passing, and all manner of perfumes, so that the sons of Jacob trod upon the aromatic spices as they carried the body forward. Thus the procession moved on until it reached Canaan. It halted at the threshing-floor of Atad, and there they lamented with a very great and sore lamentation. But the greatest honor conferred upon Jacob was the presence of the Shekinah, who accompanied the cortege. The Canaanites had no intention at first to take part in the mourning made for Jacob, but when they saw the honors shown him, they joined the procession of the Egyptians, loosing the girdles of their garments as a sign of grief. Also the sons of Esau, Ishmael, and Keturah appeared, though their design in coming was to seize the opportunity and make war upon the sons of Jacob. But when they saw Joseph's crown suspended from the bier, the Edomite and Ishmaelite kings and princes followed his example, and attached theirs to it too, and it was ornamented with thirty-six crowns. Nevertheless, the conflict was not averted. It broke out, in the end, between the sons of Jacob and Esau, and his followers. When the former were about to lower the body of their father into the cave of Machpelah, Esau attempted to prevent it, saying that Jacob had used his allotted portion of the tomb for Leah, and the only space left for a grave belonged to himself. For, continued Esau, though I sold my birthright unto Jacob, yet I have a portion in the tomb as a son of Isaac. The sons of Jacob, however, were well aware of the fact that their father had acquired Esau's share in the cave, and they even knew that a bill of sale existed, but Esau, assuming properly that the document was left behind in Egypt, denied that any such had ever been made out, and the sons of Jacob sent Naphtali, the fleet runner, back to Egypt to fetch the bill. Meantime, while this altercation was going on between Esau and the others, Husham, the son of Dan, arose and inquired in astonishment why they did not proceed with the burial of Jacob, for he was deaf and had not understood the words that had passed between the disputants. When he heard what it was all about, 
and that the ceremonies were interrupted until Naphtali should return from Egypt with the bill of sale, he exclaimed with indignation, My grandfather shall lie here unburied until Naphtali comes back? And he seized a club, and dealt Esau a vigorous blow, so that he died, and his eyes fell out of their sockets, and dropped upon Jacob's knees, and Jacob opened his own eyes and smiled. Esau being dead, his brother's burial could proceed without hindrance, and Joseph interred him in the cave of Machpelah according to his wish. His other children had left all arrangements connected with the burial of their father's body to their brother Joseph, for they reflected that it was a greater honor for Jacob if a king concerned himself about his remains rather than simple private individuals. The head of Esau, as he lay slain by the side of Jacob's grave, rolled down into the cave, and fell into the lap of Isaac, who prayed to God to have mercy upon his son, but his supplications were in vain. God spoke, saying, As I live, he shall not behold the majesty of the Lord. End of chapter 1, part 18